Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Hey, 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 folks. This is Kyle Brost here with another episode of The Art of Strategic Reaction. Today we have on Ruby Ho, who has a wealth of experience, a very diverse background. I'm excited to talk to him about how he has uh, started businesses, how he's helped businesses on the strategy side, how he even created a role for himself. He is the founder of the Ruby Ho Group and the founder of... uh, I think you say it soul. So it's uh, strategy, strategic. Uh-huh. Say that again. Strategy, agility, organizational health, and leadership. Yeah. So that's part of the Ruby Ho group, group, correct? Correct. So can you just give us a little bit on what that is? Strategy, agile, organizational leadership. When I jumped in um, into the world of executive coaching, I, I found at the beginning that my focus just on behavior from the executive coaching realm just wasn't enough. Um, and the primary reason being is as I uh, went up the, the ranks, up the ladder, if you, would, um, if you may, so many of these executives didn't care first and foremost about their behavior. They cared more about this focus on business. And I just felt like something was lacking. If I wasn't able to connect with them from the business side first, they wouldn't really care about their behavior. And when I dove into what they they cared about from the business side, it was everything about bottom line, profit, how to resolve problems from the business side, what they needed to do to transform their organization. And so what started first and foremost from behavior grew into strategy grew into agility and the ability to uh, help transform who they were leading grew into organizational health because there's not just one dynamic to organizational health. It's the whole body, I would say. And then last and, and definitely not least, then the leadership side. So how my approach is to developing a leader is we focus on the strategies and the priorities and, and what the problems are from the corporate and business level. And then what's the necessitated leadership in relation to focusing on the problem, in relation to leading their team, in relation to their behavior that's going to complement the strategy. It's so you might have heard, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Well, I, I firmly believe. Our, our priority focus based on the problem and what we're trying to resolve and what the strategy is comes first. And then what type of leader do you need to be comes next. So I love that. I think that um, the idea that it's all connected, you know, you can't just pull leadership out or you can't just pull these uh, personal characteristics out of who the organization is and what's taking place there. That all seems really intuitive um, and kind of obvious. And yet you have a lot of coaches, a lot of leaders that are coming at it from just the leadership side. So they're almost disconnecting the leadership piece saying, 
well, here's who the leader, who, here's what you need to be as a leader without knowing the context that that leader is going to actually be leading within. So I love that, that you're taking the other piece. You're saying, look, let's get the context underway. Let's get the context understood. Let's you know, learn about the organization. Let's figure out how, what the strategies and priorities are. And then once we have those things clear, let's talk about who you need to be as a leader, given those priorities, that this organization, that context, that I think that that is so big and huge. Right. Uh, I, yeah. I can, tell you, I can, I'm sorry, Kyle. I can tell you that I have had some very, very, very extreme cases of behavior, but without the context, I would just be resolving a symptom. What I mean by that is they behave fine so long as I was holding their hand, but the instant I, I let go, then they would revert back to their behavior. And it's because if you don't get to the source and you don't see the variables that are causing all of these things and you don't give them, you heard, this is probably an overused term now, but you know, the why, as Sinek would say, the why do I even need to focus on my behavior, uh, then you're really uh, missing the boat. Well, and I think, uh, yes. And then also, you could, to your point, you could solve all of these behavior uh, pieces or try to address what you perceive as behavior challenges or difficulties or problems. And yet the organization and the things that are driving so many of those things aren't resolved. And so they're just going to constantly try to creep back up. Right. I think it's interesting, you know, um, a lot of people think that there is this uh, right way to lead, like there's one right way to lead and I need to come in and I need to help people look that way and act that way, whatever this right way of leadership is. And yet, depending on the context, the type of leader you need to be is going to be dramatically different. And so, again, I think that it's awesome that you're addressing the context and you're saying, okay, let's figure out the leader you need to be given this context. Well, and here's the thing, I'm, this is, I'm generalizing when I say most leaders at the top are generally type A's and they are type A's for a reason because they are driving bottom line, they're driving revenue, they're driving growth, they're driving. And so I don't want to suppress what has got them there, but we definitely have to tweak them. And so it is, it, it, it is an art. It is an art of allowing them to be them, but at the same time, having them realize and work on things that might be detrimental, meaning they're leaving dead bodies, meaning um, they are not empathetic, meaning um, they, they, they don't have the ability to listen because somebody might not be focusing on bottom dollar, but they have to tweak because they're not the ones really doing the work. And so I, I prove to them that I get it. I get what really matters to them. But on the same token, when I prove that, then they're ready and more open to saying or to hearing why the, let's just call, call it the softer side is also very important. So if you look at the past year, there's at least 80, at least 80 top level executives who, because of the softer size side of things, extreme behavior have gotten fired and imploded their entire organization. 
So it is important, they, and they get it, but they also need to be shown that you get why they're so driven and, and, and focusing on the harder things. So in, in your model, you, you start with strategy, right? So you start with priorities. Yeah. And so how I do that is, uh, so SOL, S-A-O-L, I, I, I talk about the key areas of organization health that we measure. And um, nothing I do is siloed. And so it starts at the very top, taking care of company. Are we taking care of company? Are we driving bottom line? Um, taking care of our stakeholders. Who are they and would they say you're winning? Taking care of team, the team that you lead. And there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, taking care of the respective departments and functions. I call them the, the parts of the body. Taking care of self. And self is inclusive of both leadership and is inclusive of both the personal side. So when you incorporate all of those and you put them together and you, you hit the go button, you have this basically health checkup to determine where you're winning and where you're losing. And then we start to go and start to peel back the onion. So at the very highest level, we start with the overarching mission, vision, strategies of the company for the next 12 months. I don't believe in the five years because it always changes, but what's the immediate top level priorities? And then how do we cascade those down? How does the organization complement the overarching vision and the overarching strategic initiatives for the 12 months? Um, how do they complement our core competencies? How do the department's strategies complement the overarching company strategies? How do the teams complement the department's strategies? And then how do the individuals complement the team strategy? So it's, 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 it's literally a cascade interconnected. And when you hit the go button, then we have people and we have performance and we have process things that we have to focus on that complements them all. So that's why it's so complicated. So I'm, I'm with you. I'm following you. There's there's one piece, and I, and I agree with you. There's one piece that I either have to hear how you're dealing with or uh, figure out how we think about it. Because I, I, the piece is I, I follow you and I'm with you in terms of let's figure out all of the dynamics of the organization that are contributing to what it is you want to achieve. Let's you know address and resolve. Let's Let's figure out how to design those things. I mean, really what you're talking about is organization design. You're saying, how does the organization need to be designed to deliver on these things? The piece that I can't quite follow yet is how you do that in 12 months. So, and, and I'm coming from this knowing that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't do it in 12 months. It, 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 I'm sorry. So um, when I say 12 months, I just mean it from the let's just say the individual leader's priority perspective. In my mind, it's what we're focusing on in these 12 months that matters most. I'm not saying we resolve it in 12 months, the overarching strategies we're trying to accomplish. We are, I want to meet them where they are in present day. So that was, that's just a 12 month forecast of what they, the leader I'm working with is immediately focused on and I meet them where, whether it's in the nine month point or the 10 month point or the three month point, I have to have a clear indicator of what they're being measured by within this 12 month fiscal, let's say, so that I can help 
complement not only their what they're focusing on from the business side, but what they need to work on on the leadership side. That's it. When I'm working with an organization, we're looking at overarching strategies and then implementing from the 12 month side um, how to get over to to the three year completion. So I didn't mean to say in a snapshot we're going to get everything done in 12 months. That is not true. Okay, so I can follow all of that. I just <laughs> I've worked with uh, quite a few organizations in organization design, and uh, and especially a bigger organization. You know, there's just the amount of time it takes to actually steer the ship is uh, yeah is immense. So I was, but I got you now. Right. It is immense. No. And, and, and think about it when I'll talk from the executive coaching side first. Um, it's interesting because when I just focus on behavior, I would just literally focus on behavior. I was never focusing on the business side, but when I combined soul and the focus of business and organizational health and strategy and agility and agile processes into it, then all of a sudden I became 10 times more influential in a company than I, ha- I ever have because I was going into their teams now and focusing on the team's strategy, not only the leaders, and then the teams became the department's strategy, and then the departments became the company strategy, and the company became the board strategy. So I've worked at all the different levels just by focusing on the overarching strategies of um, starting with the individual and then growing from there. Well, so let's talk about that word for a minute, the word influence. You say you, you became so much more influential. What does influence mean to you? And what do you feel are the keys or the, the biggest factors to being or having influence? So as an outsider, you, in, in my opinion, in my, um, only will have influence until you have authority meaning the actual title and literally the ability to hire and fire and just and make the executive decision on priorities, you will only have influence. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean it, your influence can't be great. And so influence simply boils down to, again, I'm going to use some overused terms, but it's true. Um, the bottom line is you have, once you achieve the trust level, and the competence level with the individual or with the team that you're working with, both from the business and EQ side of things, your ability to influence and even steer a very, very high level leader's decisions is immense. And so there's a great book called The Human Brand that talks about we only on the planet, it doesn't matter whether we have a product or a service we're delivering, we're measured only by two big buckets, the warmth bucket. That's what I call the EQ bucket and the competence bucket. And if we can combine them both with whoever we're working with to emit both warmth and competence consistently, consistently means we have success stories behind it or they experience these success stories and we become highly influential. Yeah. So I have uh, I have a, a trust model that talks about this two similar things in terms of what trust is. So there's the, the competence trust, which is what you just said, you know, there's an element of 
we trust people who we believe are going to carry out what they say they're going to do. Um, and it's not just that we believe they're going to try. The competence trust is a matter of we actually believe they can. They have the competence and skills. So we know that they're going to or we trust, believe that they're going to try and that they actually have the capability to carry out whatever the task is. So that's the competence trust. And then there's the other element, which you're referring to as warmth. In my model, we simply call it relational trust, which is, I believe that you have my best interest in mind. And so it's the combination of believing that you can carry out, that you have the capability and will to carry out the things that you say you will, along with the belief that you have my best interest in mind. And if those two things come together, then I have this really high degree of trust with, with you. I wonder if there's some other piece, because I've never tried to tie that model of trust in with influence, which is how do you then turn trust into actual influence? So I I wonder if you have a response to what that gap is. If I have relational trust and I have competence trust with someone, how do I then actually start to influence or move them towards something? What's missing that gives me that edge to move somebody towards a goal or an objective? Well, and, and that's where, so this is where the, the art comes in. You, you brought up a, a very big word, the, the B word, the belief in capability. And so we, as an outsider, I'll start off with, without authority, just focus on it, on influence, need to be given permission uh, from the insider, in quotes, of where we can be influential and so if an individual client for instance sees you just solely as an executive coach they will allow you to be once you've crossed the bridge between uh, of both trust and competence i mean um, from the executive coaching swim lane they allow you to be extremely influential around executive coaching problems that's your swim lane because that's where they believe you are competent to gain influence beyond your swim lane. You have to prove to them another area of competence that you actually have competence outside of executive coaching to be influential in the business and um, business strategy lane. And I had to go on that journey. So initially, as I had mentioned, I was just influential in my executive coaching swim lane. But then once I got into working with the leaders teams, then all of a sudden the leader saw me because the the initial exercise of what are your overarching business strategies, being competent in facilitating and helping prioritize business strategies and, and then their they were exposed to a a different level of competence. And then in time, they allowed me to be more influential there. And it just grows. So it grows from actual application and the, 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 the client's experience with you uh, being competent in a lane. They didn't believe you had that competence initially. I hope that makes sense. I think it makes sense. I think one thing that I heard uh, within that, is if you really want to be influential, 
you have to see how, how the swim lane that you have influence within actually connects or can lead to the swim lane that you want to have influence in. So it's like, if I want to, if I'm working with a leader or even any individual, and there's some goal that I feel like they could be, or would find value or fulfillment in being focused on, but I don't have the influence to, to lead them toward that goal. What I have to ask is what do I have influence on today that can be a stepping stone to getting them toward this goal. So let me influence where I can today in order to move them toward where I really want to be influencing them, which is some goal or some objective that, um, that they'll find fulfillment and satisfaction in pursuing. Correct. And I've, I've, um, having certified a number of people to become executive coaches and through their case studies, I mean, th- sometimes you, there's a point where it's just not going to work, meaning you do not have enough influence and, and uh, no matter what you do, because a combination of they don't believe you have the competence to influence them outside of wherever you need to influence them or whatever other limiting variable, uh, you can't solve. Uh, there are cases you just, you're, you're not going to be able to resolve the situation. I have walked away from situations because I just knew the client would, didn't want to see me beyond my swim lane or uh, allow themselves to go where they needed to go so I could be more influential. I said, I'm sorry, this, just, this is not going to work. And so, you know, in one sense, we have to be very cognizant of those situations too because we can't turn wine uh, water into wine in some situations we have to be able to clearly see wow i have zero influence here this is just going to be like a checklist exercise going to get me nowhere yeah well what's funny or ironic about that is because i've had similar situations where i just had to go to a client and say look uh, you know we're, we're not going to get where we need to go and what's interesting the irony in that is that there have been multiple times where that has been my biggest, my greatest tool by walking up to them, by saying explicitly, here's where I think we need to go and why I think we need to go there. And yet I can't get us there given, you know, these circumstances or the decision-making. So I'm going to need to walk away because I don't want to, you know, head down a road that I know is going to produce these, you know, negative things. That explicit conversation has turned into stronger clients that have actually stuck with me. Once I've had that explicit conversation and said, look, if we go down this road, here's what I see happening. And I don't, I don't have the influence to get us away from that today. I've actually had clients say, you know, come back and say, yeah, you're right. This is where we're headed. And, you know, given that you were so explicit about it. I am now actually giving you more decision authority to do these things. And so I've actually had that turn into stronger yeah. relationships, even though I went in with the intention that, that we were going to you know, discontinue the engagement. Well, I'm, I'm laughing with you, Kyle, because then there are such situations where just being so truthful and transparent, you become tenfold more influential where they believe, and I put they in, again, in quotes, you have more competence or you're showing more competence in a swim lane you haven't proven yourself in because you're so competent in your current swim lane. And so what I mean by that is there are situations where 
I have just knocked it out of the park being an executive coach and I'm so influential, then they start to believe I, I can be just as competent in anything. And that is kind of like a, a leadership recruiting uh, symptom, I believe, where we can get so enamored by somebody's current capability that that they they believe that, wow, this person's so successful as an executive coach, I bet now they can run the IT department. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, it's just like, it's the polar opposite. This person's now been so influential on me. I wonder if they can, you know, take down my entire company now. Yeah. And, you know, there are, there's definitely some truth to that. But at, on the same time, at, on the same token, we have this responsibility to know our limits as well, as much as our capabilities. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been in those positions and it, it's uh, tempting to get into those spaces uh, that are outside of your real, really your realm of experience or capability um, and trying to rein that in and not be tempted to step into those places and put yourself at, at too much risk is it can be challenging at times. Well, and I'll tell you, Cal, it's more of a common thing internally than it is uh, not a common thing because you think about the essence of what leadership is at the highest level. It's not about us having a lot of depth. It's us having a lot of breadth. So it's, it's possible. Um, it's possible, but it has to be managed extremely well. So we go back to organizational design. We have to know what we bring to the table and what we don't. And then we have to really be very in tune to the talent management side of things, right? Building our team and, and knowing that those who surround us are both competent and capable and we trust them. Well, and you have some personal recent experience in asking those questions, right? I mean, you, when you went from, uh, you know, having a, a group that you ran to creating an internal corporate position for yourself, what was, yes. what was that like and what, it, what steps went into creating that or having that develop? Yeah. And it, it's the reason why I just brought up these, uh, th these scenarios because it, it, that's exactly what happened to me. I mean, so 10 years ago, I started working with a number of companies where I've been with them for the past 10 years and they've seen my influence or they have allowed my influence to grow. We're literally the executives from this privately held company said, we'd like you to come in and join us. Um, and, and I said, okay, to what extent will we want you to have um, a seat at the table, the executive table with us? And I said, well, uh, what would that look like? Well, we'd like you to do kind of more of the same and even help drive our strategies. And so I really thought about that. I didn't want to become an HR executive, no disrespect to HR. I don't know. I didn't know if I wanted to be a uh, run a business division solely because I really enjoy the EQ side of things. And so in Seoul, I have this title that I have my people try to attain and it's called CPPO, which stands for Chief People and Performance Officer. But the executives didn't like that because it was it, to them, it sounded too people skewed and they wanted me to have more of a business channel. So then I thought, well, chief performance and leadership officer, which allows me to focus and partner with 
all the business leaders across the enterprise and at the same time champion leadership. So it's the bridge between both business performance, overall performance, and leadership performance. And so I created this chief performance and leadership officer role. And when I was looking into this, you know, I, I know under the Obama um, administration, they actually have, they created this chief performance officer, which was literally responsible for driving overarching strategies. But then th that leadership component was missing. So I laid it out and I said, well, how about chief performance and leadership officer where I can partner with the business leaders to help drive their strategies or remove bottlenecks or optimize situations, but I'll still be responsible for the overarching leadership of the enterprise as well. And so it allows me to have the best of both worlds. Um, so it feels literally like I'm, I haven't really changed what I do, but now I have a whole lot more authority to be both authoritative and influential. It's pretty cool. That is really cool. And I'm curious, as you were actually kind of developing this role, as you were thinking about what it would be, what were the things you thought, this is going to have to be in place for me to succeed? What were those things that came top of mind that you said, okay, if I'm going to do this, this has to be there in order for me to succeed? Yeah. And not to sound arrogant, Cal, when I say, or even cold, is once I came on, come in on the inside, I have to have the ability to hire and fire based on a person's capability to deliver. And with influence, I can recommend from the talent management side. With authority, I can say, I'm, I'm sorry, here are the overarching strategies. Here's what needs to be done. Here's the performance metrics. Here's the leadership requirements. And you're either going to cut it or you're not, given the support mechanisms that we have in place. And I, 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 without how I went into thinking about this is, you know, there will come a time where I will have to make the recommendation to remove or bring in talent because we're not meeting our goals. And without that influence and authority, um, again, I, that would not have been ideal enough for me. And so I, I, that's how I tabled it to them. I said, if I don't have authority in this or high enough position, I, I don't want to come in on the inside. Uh, they, they asked me a while ago, they presented, uh, the, they asked if I would join a number of years ago and I turned it down because I didn't have this position. But, you know, they often wondered, would I be just as effective as I was on the outside? now being an insider. And so I knew that if they didn't give me this title and position and, and level of authority, I, I would be, I could still be very influential, but I wouldn't have the authority I needed to make that tough call. So that's, I, I, I can see the value in having that. Um, and obviously, you know, running a team, I, I know what it's like to need to make those decisions. One question that always comes up when someone does have that authority in terms of hiring and firing and the actual status of their team is when you're trying to develop someone um, or when you're working with somebody who's underperforming, where do you draw the line between, okay, they're underperforming and I see their potential 
or they're underperforming and it's time to let them go. Where's that line and how do you make that decision? I mean, it's a big decision and, and there's a lot of implications personally to people by making, you know, in making those decisions. So how do you balance trying to develop somebody for their potential versus uh, saying, you know what, this just isn't a good fit? Yeah, well, that's a great question, Kyle. I, I want to first start off by saying, unless you don't bleed, it's hard. It's very, very, very hard to let somebody go or make these positional moves regardless. And it's even harder when you're part of a privately held company where you know everybody's name and you know everybody's family. Very, very, very hard. But at the end of the day, it's called work for a reason. You know, even not-for-profits have to make money. We have to take care of the enterprise. So there's a saying that I that I say: it's we take care of um, people who take care of the business, but we don't take care of people in spite of the business. We have to take care of the business first, and so. Uh, we always give everyone the opportunity regardless. So let's just say I start in a situation. I want I, I work with a leader who's been there for 10 years. Everybody knows they're not, this person's not performing, but I still have to give them the opportunity to prove it to me. And so uh, it's not one strike and you're out. It's repeated strikes and you're out. Um, so it's evidence-based and, um, let me first back up a little bit. I, I believe, generally speaking, people fall into two categories. They're either great specialists or experts, or they're really there to lead others. And so the first thing I have to ask myself is, what is the expected contribution from the position? So is it at a VP position? Is there a contribution overarching, um, let's just say, to deliver on the bottom line, or are they supposed to be an expert? And so I have to measure their performance based on the expectation. Um, but that's when I then, based on the expectation, we have to do a gap analysis and determine whether this individual is delivering on those expectations and then start to create um a plan towards them working towards those things. And the evidence is either they're showing that they're getting there or it's not. But if it's repeated, um, then we have to shorten the time frame, whether it's three months or six months. And again, that's going to be based on business priority or sense of urgency. And then we have to make the call. And so I'm sure, Kyle, you've also experienced situations where people are holding on for years because they can't overcome the subjectivity. They can't be objectively measuring their people's performance. And so there's a lot of, unfortunately, um, less than stellar performance being delivered, but they're not moving their talent because of the subjective, you know, I'm too close to this person and now I have to go out afterwards because I know their family or, or whatever. Yeah, I've definitely seen that, you know, in terms of the, the progress piece, you know, and having clear guidance, I, I take a, an approach with my people that um, some people really like, some people don't like it, but strategic thinking is such a big piece of who we are as an organization. And it's such a critical skill for our people that when I have someone who's underperforming, I actually bring them in and I talk about 
um, what the underperformance looks like. And, yeah. and then what I do is I actually have them draft what progress is going to look like. Um, awesome. So I'm not the one that actually says, here's what I need you to go do. I say, here's what the underperformance looks like. You need to tell me what progress is going to look like. And I do that for a couple of reasons. One, I do it because strategic thinking is such a key part of the role that I need to see that they understand the disconnect between what they're currently doing and where they need to go. So based on what they actually draft as progress, it tells me whether or not they get it. Because sometimes I'll say, I need you to draft what progress looks like for me or what progress looks like. And they'll bring me something back that is not progress, that is too tactical. It's not focused on the right things. It doesn't address the issue. And that tells me yeah. right away that this person is going to take even more development or that they're not a right fit. And so I have to you know, make that decision then just based on what they draft. The other piece I is it gives yeah. them the ownership of taking the next step forward. And when they get to the other side, so for those that it works and they get to the yeah. other side, they get to take all credit for it. They get to have the confidence that said, I resolved this problem, not my boss resolved this problem for me because they're the ones that actually drafted the plan and the progress and decided what it looked like. And I just supported them in that. And so that approach has worked really well for me. It still creates the dilemma at some point, which is how many times do I give them before I say this is a, you know, that we haven't made progress. And so we always just attach, you know, some timelines to it and we say, here's what 90 days progress looks like. Um, and most people know that they have basically six months, um, to, to figure something out. So if 90 days doesn't look good, then I pretty much let them know you've got about another 90 days to either start looking for work or just plan to be done if, if we can't make it happen in the next 90 days. That's awesome. Have you, you heard the saying, we work to our, we rise up to our level of incompetence? No, I haven't heard that. Yeah. So not competence, but we rise up to our level of incompetence. And then we're given the opportunity to see if we can break through that ceiling. But, um, but I, yeah, that, 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 that is a, a great evidence-based approach. That's what you're doing. You're showing where people, you can see where people are based on that method that you're, you're using. I love it. Well, the, the other thing that the other conversation we have during all of these things is just explaining that the reason I'm having the conversation with them is not because it, it's not as much because I feel like they've made a mistake or that they're doing something wrong. I mean, that's a piece of it, but the reason yeah. that I'm actually having the conversation is because I truly believe they have greater potential. I see potential in them. I believe they have the potential if I didn't believe the second piece, if it was just the first piece that they were, you know, uh, underperforming and I didn't believe they had potential, I wouldn't have the conversation. It, it would be meaningless if I didn't think that they could make progress and come out the other side. And so I always try to reinforce that these conversations are really about their potential, not about their underperformance. And all I'm trying to do is create a, a pathway for them to actually start reaching and making progress toward their potential. Yeah, in this conversation, this topic specifically that we're having, it, it's so I, I love that method of what you're doing to, uh, in quotes, size up your people and help them uh, meet their expectations in terms of performance. And on the same token, right, wrong, or different, I just believe there are very few leaders in general who are able to 
take their people up the growth ladder because they're just there's just they've learned one way or their leadership style is one way and it's just not common where leaders help their teams actually grow on the individual level because they just don't they don't know how to do that and so unfortunately what happens in some extreme cases is we also bring in talent based on our lens and that's it and that can be good or bad if we're a mediocre leader we tend to bring in mediocre talent so there's there's also something called imposters theory uh, have you heard of that one um, I've heard of imposter syndrome I'm, I'm assuming it's similar yeah it is similar where we ha- we're so self-conscious about having somebody look better than us inclusive of our actual people who report to us that we end up hiring talent uh inferior to us which basically hurts the enterprise when you think about it so yeah well so here we come full circle right where we're getting right back to the place that says you have to understand the context in order to be the right leader so if you have one style of leadership and that's the only style that you have Um, it will work for one context. And yet as context changes, your leadership style will need to adjust and change to meet that context. Um, In terms of, you know, bringing on people that look and act and think like you, I often tell leaders, if you have a very clear direction and you're never going to have to change direction, that might work for you. But if you ever need to change direction and you only have a group of people that all think and act the same, you will not succeed. You will not be able to make those shifts in direction without having different perspectives. And yeah. most leaders, when I have that conversation, recognize that there's not an organization in the world that's just going to have one direction and never needs to shift. And yeah. so it often hits them that, yeah, you're right. Look, if there's one thing I need to do and it's very clear, then it makes a lot of sense. I can have people that think and act and believe the same. But when we have to start addressing problems and doing things differently, we're going to need a diverse group of people that can think and act differently. I completely agree. So one of the measures that um, that I determine whether or not this is somebody who I want on my leadership team is their ability, believe it or not, in real-time meetings – to be able to both listen and speak up. And so, uh, again, we hear the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, but um, candidly, in, in real-time meetings where we're talking about problems and priorities and strategies and where people are, it's very interesting to see the who who shows up to those conversations, but you know, having worked with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different executives and hundreds and hundreds of different teams, in hundreds and hundreds of different scenarios, there is there is some correlation between a a leader and their capability, their ability to speak up in those meetings. And not, and what what I mean by that is, time and time again, I've seen those people who speak up, not because they're trying to be the squeaky wheel. They're just simply speaking up because they have an opinion, 
um, they are the ones who are more driving decisions and, and leading teams than being part of the team. And I, and I don't mean that to, to downplay anybody who's, uh, I, I guess, not trying to speak up in those meetings, but it, from the leader perspective, um, there's another term th- that I like to say, you know, it's never crowded along the extra mile, but leaders, especially CEOs who are leading enterprises, maybe some of them might not readily admit it, but they want to be challenged because they even question sometimes their decisions. And when you don't have individuals to kind of poke at their decisions and, and their goals, um, these CEOs, I, I can guarantee you go to bed at night, not 100% secure in their decisions because nobody's pushed back on it. And so the, the greatest teammates are helping prod and poke to, not, to, to help give assurance that the decisions even the CEO is making is, is solid and valid. And so they actually desire to be challenged. Yeah, I actually just last week I was um, in New York meeting with a client and we had gone through uh, drafting basically some strategy work and we got to this place and uh, and the leader actually stopped and said, uh, this was a great example of what you're speaking to. The leader stopped and said, um, we, we got here too easily and it feels too comfortable. It feels too natural. And so right. we actually need to just stop uh stop for now and have a day to think and process this before moving forward because of those exact things. Like it just came too easily, the the decisions they were arriving at and felt too comfortable that she was worried that, that we would make those decisions uh, because they felt easy and comfortable versus actually being challenged, actually thinking through the implications of them before moving to the next steps. And so that was a great example of her recognizing that, um, that there needs to be some challenge and some some pushback there for us to surface the the barriers instead of just assuming that it's going to you know run forward smoothly because it fits right now. Right. So right. I have and yep. I have one one question for you. If if I'm a leader and I'm listening to this podcast, I'm saying, all right, I've got a, a I've got to I've got to match my leadership with the context that I sit in. Where do I start? What what do I what are the questions that I need to be asking and answering in order to help me adjust my leadership to my my current context? So I always start with the hourglass approach, and what I simply mean by that is the first priority is having a an extremely clear picture of what the overarching goals and strategic initiatives are for the enterprise and the corporation that I'm leading or the department that I'm leading. What is this department? What is this organization being measured by in terms of overall success and why? Like clear, clear, clear picture that this can be justified. If they're not clear, then they need to get that validated. Then the second thing is, as we go down the next tier is, Uh, So what is my, as a leader, my expected contribution? How am I being measured to these overarching goals? And then 
and then how am I doing? And then the next tier down is when I look at my personal core competencies of what I bring to the table, both from the technical side, let's say, what are my capabilities there and how am I doing? And from the leadership side, what do I need? What type of leader do I need to be? Am I going to be the authoritative leader? And am I going to be uh, the more empathetic leader? What type of leader do I have to be the interdepartmental leader? Um, and, and then what are those overarching goals as a leader? And then I go one layer down and say, well, and then I look at myself internally. What am I? And who am I? Do I skew towards the more authoritative? Am I the more inclusive? Am I the more data-driven? I'm just going through DISC, by the way. Am I the more um, relational? And then I look at, and then I have to size up my gaps there. If I have a gap between who I need to be and who I am, then I, I absolutely need to get help because I'm not going to get it through a book. So it's like, don't be scared of the help. It's going to be limiting you from your overarching goals. And then I look across the organization again and say, who are the people I can leverage both on my team and with my stakeholders internally that are going to help drive those goals? And then how are they to me? How do I complement their strategies and their leadership styles to me? And so... Basically, what I've done, Kyle, is just create my scorecard. I have to have a clear scorecard, which was in essence is the overarching strategic holistic plan that shows both what I need to deliver, how I need to deliver, and how I'm doing today. And there's the gap analysis to the scorecard. Once I have that, then I start executing and I start gathering data and getting feedback and, and tweaking as I go. And that's how you grow. That's how you go beyond your current swim lane as a leader. So that's awesome. That gives uh, a ton of places for people to focus a, a lot of uh, narrowing down to get at what are the real gaps. Um, and so if you're a leader out there listening um, Ruby just outlined a great approach to figuring out how does my leadership need to adjust to fit this context. Um, I think on the front end, you know, if somebody is not ready to create a scorecard on the front end, I think you helped them think strategically in terms of just starting with priorities. What, what are the goals? If I'm, if I can do one thing as a leader, that helps me be a better leader. It's going to relate to how do I get to the goals or priorities that are set? How do I put each of my decisions into the context of the goals that we're trying to achieve? That's the gap that I see most leaders have. And when you get yeah. down to the end where you're talking about in terms of what's the gap on my personal side, that's creating these organizational gaps, it helps. But if there's just one little shift in the way that a leader thinks, it's simply that question. How do I put every decision into the context of the goals or the priorities I'm trying to achieve? And if you can do that, 
then the rest of it will surface in terms of what it takes to be a good leader within your context. But just that one shift will dramatically transform the decisions that you're making. Um, and then you can move toward this scorecard approach, which will give you very detailed and realistic information for, uh, for what's next in terms of your leadership and where you have the greatest opportunities to grow and to help the organization move forward. So and you. again, yeah, yeah, not at all. Um, just one more statement, Kyle. It's like, I, I believe there are too many leaders out there. I'm talking the type A executives out there they're making a singular choice. And what I mean by that is they would rather focus on the business strategy to keep the lights on for an organization um, at the expense of actual leadership and empowerment and inclusion and talent management of their enterprise. Where I disagree, I believe you can have both. And like I said again uh, earlier, we take care of the company and we take care of people who take care of the company, but we have to take care of them both. I'm not saying we take care of people at the expense of the company. And so we can have both. We can definitely take care of the company, but we, we, we must be relentless also in taking care of the people who take care of the company because we can't do it on our own. Yeah, I think that is a, a wonderful way to sum up this conversation in terms of having priorities, focusing on organizational health and recognizing the role that your people are going to play in that, especially if you can recruit and bring on board and keep those people who really are invested in the business, are invested in the organization itself. And to your point, who help the organization, we take care of people who take care of the company. Um, we don't take care of people who, you know, in spite of the company. So we're not looking to sink the ship to take care of a few people. We're looking for us all to be on the ship rowing together so that we can move forward. Awesome. Well, Ruby, thanks for joining me on uh, the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. Is there anything that you would leave our listeners with as one final thought or note? Yeah, I, I believe the final thought is or statement is this is not easy. It's hard. Um, but it, it, you know, it's, it's definitely worth it and, and give yourself the grace to allow yourself to stumble a lot. It, it, it's imperfect leadership, but you know, we're human beings. So we're, we're going to make many, many mistakes, but that shouldn't be an excuse for us to not strive towards just a better situation. Fantastic. Well, Ruby, thanks again for joining me on the Artist Strategic Reaction podcast. Uh, listeners and folks, thanks for joining us and listening in. Hope that you got some grounding in how you adjust and uh, modify your leadership given your own context and the importance and role of other folks in helping you push toward strategy. This has been another episode of the Artist Strategic Reaction. Thanks for listening in.